This is the Journey 66 Book Writing Podcast. I'm Melissa Parks with Dave Getz, and we are your road trip advisors. You may be at mile marker one and just thinking about an idea for a book, or maybe you've gone off-road in your writing and you want to restart the journey. Join Dave and me as we help you buckle up and write. For many, writing a book is no more than narcissistic affirmation. Without a book, you don't feel legitimate or like your ideas matter. The problem, of course, is the payback for writing a book often is less than expected. But what if authors embraced honest, real expectations for what a book can and can't do for their lives? So Dave, I'm really familiar about thinking that being published will fill a narcissistic void. I, for years, wanted to have my home published in an interior magazine, and Country Living was my favorite magazine for years, for 15 to 20 years, and I started posting on Instagram, and I had some nibbles from some scouts for Country Living, and they wanted to pass on my images to the editors there, and that was amazing, and at that moment, ignited inside of me was this belief that getting printed would provide meaning in my life. So working with me over the last 20 years has not provided you tons and tons of meaning. <laughs> That's not true. My work is, here has provided lots yes, of meaning. Yes, it is. But there's something to be said about something that is so core to who you are. Your home can be an expression of yourself, a creative expression. So for me, I felt like, um, and it was very important for me, decorating my home is part of you know my identity, right? So I thought- But when it, did it start? So when do you think that idea that I would love to be published in Country Living magazine? I mean, that's a very specific It was a very specific goal. And why I started posting on Instagram, because I thought that was the way to get published. And ultimately, that's what ended up happening. But I think I saw somebody whose home I thought was really not that much better than mine. And she was published in Country Living magazine. So it felt attainable for the first time. Prior to that moment, I thought... I don't even know how to get in a magazine, and it's only people who have really expensive, fancy Exotic houses. Homes yeah, right, or fancy houses. Coast. Yeah, and I just, it never occurred to me that anybody would even want to have my home in their magazine. And so when I got that first nibble, it became this like, oh, I may be as good as those people that I revered all these years that were in magazines. So, long story short, for three years, I was promised being in the magazine, and then they said, oh, not this year, next year. They had come out and done a photo shoot even, sent out two stylists, two photographers from New York, and it kept on getting bump. And for years, I just thought, if only I had that spread in the magazine, then I would feel like someone. So after the photographers came out and they did an actual shoot, that wasn't guaranteed in a sense that, I mean, you didn't think even then... That what, they might not publish your, your house? I, I thought they were going to publish it. They said they were going to publish it in, I think, three months. They came out in January. They said it was going to come out in the April edition. So I was certain that it was going to be published, but I opened up that April edition and it wasn't in there. And I reached out to the editor, asked her what happened. She goes, oh, I should have gotten back to you on that. We decided not to use your home, but we're going to look for... <sighs> 
an, an issue for it to go in in the future. So another year went by, and I figured it would have to be next spring because it was styled for spring. The home was styled for spring, and the next year it wasn't in there. And so I reached out to the editor again. And in the meantime, all these other publishers, editors from other magazines were reaching out and saying, can you be in my magazine? But I had a non-compete with Country Living, so I couldn't wow. get my house published. So, And then I saw my friends getting published, and for me, I felt like, because I wasn't published, I was a nobody. So fast forward, finally, I had started to do some some writing for another magazine, getting published in a different way, and I had kind of given up on the dream and just realized, whatever, it's not going to happen. And as soon as I said it wasn't going to happen, the editor said, we want to run a story of your house. And within two months, it was in the pages of Country Living. So it happened, but when I saw the magazine, it was really nice, it was beautiful, it was my dream coming to life, but it really didn't give me anything significant, except that was a nice experience. But it, when you got that little magazine in your hands for the first time, and you, when it came in the mail, you opened it up, It had there had to be some emotion there. It was pretty neat, but I, I don't know how to identify it, except I think that I realized that in the years of waiting for this, that I had to be okay with who I was without it. So I think I'd come to terms with the hard stuff. And once it came, I was like, oh, it was neat. But my identity wasn't totally sucked into it. Yeah. It was yeah, kind yeah. of fun seeing it on the racks at like Barnes and Nobles and grocery stores. And, you know, wherever I went, I would go and look at it and say, well, that's pretty crazy to think this is a national magazine with mil millions of readers. And there I am, my little house. That's awesome. <laughs> so did you receive other inquiries then afterwards like after that was published did other publications go hey melissa we'd love to consider your house for publication as well did that happen or no no that didn't happen what happened was i was in other magazines simply because i continued to work on my craft through instagram which was writing and styling and other opportunities came up on that because of that because of that but it didn't come from my actual feature in country living i may have gotten a few extra followers on instagram of course there's really no way to track that how you get followers from instagram by somebody reading a magazine article i may have gotten a few followers but no opportunities followed it i really look at it as something that gave me more credibility just going forward if i was to ever speak on some sort of decorating or antiquing or vintage thing, I would have that as like, oh, I was featured in Country Living, but it didn't change my life. Nobody was knocking at my door saying, hey, Melissa, you know, can we use your house for such and such? Or would you come in style this house for a photo shoot? Or th there, there, there was no column or anything that came after so it. So one takeaway as we talk about our, our topic today, one takeaway really is there is the emotion, right, that you feel, and that's a wonderful thing. But in your case, at least one takeaway would be it's not going to change your life dramatically. No, it's not going to change your life dramatically. You have to keep on working. You know, there's this quote by Anne Lamott, and she talks about how there's this buildup leading up to being published. And it's really, it's a mixed bag of two fantasies, but you're both happy and grim as you're waiting for the feedback. And I did experience that. I was really happy, but I was also carrying around that baggage of what are people going to really think of me? Are they going to 
not like my home? Are the, am, am I an imposter? That definitely comes yeah, along yeah, with yeah, it. And sure. I know that that's something that we we talk with other authors about when they write a book is, is it going to be reviewed well? Um, are people going to criticize me for what I've written? Are they going to eviscerate me <laughs> in yeah, some right, way? Right. What did I miss? What did I miss? Certainly with a book, you're thinking, oh man, what did I miss? Right, right. Yeah. And with books, there's also the added stress of having to actually sell copies, right? That's right. That's right. With a magazine article, there's not that pressure. But with selling books, there's that added pressure of what happens if I don't sell any copies? Well, I, re I remember that emotion when Death by Suburb came out. I remember getting what they call the first offs. The books that come first, and they, they send them to the author. And you open it up, and it's... It's, it's an unbelievable experience in the sense of it's emotional. There's a great sense of satisfaction that lasts for about, you know, 18 seconds. And then you are thinking about those things right. like, okay, will this book sell? You have all these other things that start to come behind it. And so it is a wonderful emotion. I've written Death by Suburb and I wrote uh, The Fly Fisher's Book of Lists and both books... Uh, and each was so different, right? Uh, but with Death by Suburb, I th I'll tell this quick story. <laughs> My wife had stopped reading our manus the manuscript yeah. right before the book came out. And so she didn't see some of my revisions. And so I had made some changes, some substantive changes in the last rewrite. She hadn't seen it. Because at some point, you either can keep a relationship with your spouse or have her be a weird, <laughs> you know, at some point she's rolling yeah. her eyes and, eyes and saying, do I, I have to read this one more I time? Do I have to read this? And Jenna was great. But, so when the book came out, I realized there was a section there that was a little bit too explicit about a story of one of her friends. Hmm. And so with Death by Suburb, almost all the stories are conflated stories. They're real stories, but I would take a piece from one and a piece from another. Right, just to make sure, because it was, it was local. It was in where I lived, and I wanted to make sure that I wasn't hurting someone or mocking them. Well, one of the stories just wasn't hidden enough, and so I saw it and flagged it, and, and I ran a copy over to the friend of my wife's just to say, hey, just a heads up, here's a story that is obliquely connected to you, yeah. And you'll see some details here. Uh, I don't know what I said, but I ran a copy over to her. She came back, handed me the book back, and wrote me the most hateful letter Whoa. that I've ever had in my life. Whoa. She called me, uh, uh, well, I won't even say what she said. <laughs> so, but it, it was very hurtful, and she was right. I mean, in many ways, I had hurt her. Yeah. And even though the whole story wasn't, I had added in some other details. And when you're writing stories, you exaggerate a little bit to, to you know, to keep give the it, interest alive. Right. And yeah. the whole book was, was sarcastic. Yeah. And so in that style of book, you know, some people are going to get hurt. And I right. think one did. We lost, it, it ended the friendship. Wow. wow. And, and, and so that was one of the consequences. Right. Uh, I, it wasn't. She wasn't my friend. She was my wife's friend. And, and, but, but those are the types of things that sometimes are consequences of when right. that book comes out, at least for me it was. Right. What are some other consequences that you can think of? The grim I, consequences. Well, I think a, another grim consequence would be getting reviewed 
and someone identifying something huge that you missed. Yeah, right. Now, the problem with reviews, critical reviews, is that they're always telling often what you didn't put in the book. But by the very nature of a thesis, an idea for a book, when you create that idea, you're eliminating all this other stuff. You're making a case for this idea. Right. So you can't put everything in. You can't put it, everything in. It would be as big as the world, right? So, And so often you'll get critiqued like that. Right. And, right. and one critique for me was that, that the idea wasn't substantive enough. So my thesis was with Death by Suburb that that there are these toxins that yep. pollute the spirituality of all of us who live in the suburbs. And I identified eight of those toxins. Yep. And and I had quite a few people, especially in speaking engagements, say to me, you know, Dave, I'm not so sure that those are unique to the suburbs. It really forced me to rethink that. And I came back and said, no, I, I'm right on that. But I could have been a little more explicit in the book. So another grim thing would be uh, would be a review that, that exposes you or right. the fear of that. And how do you not take that personally to a place of defeat? Well, you do take it personally. Everything, every critical review is personal. And I had one on a blog, somebody said that I had sold Wheaton down the river. Mm. And so that was hard. I came back from a a trip that we had made. Uh, We were out in Colorado, I think, came back and one of our cars that sat outside had been egged. Oh, wow. So I wasn't sure if that was just the neighborhood boys or, you know, whether, but it was correlated to the time the book came out. So that reminds me of that Stephen King quote that you shared with me when I wrote something that was particularly antagonistic, but had a very explicit point of view. And it was something you'll have to remind me of the exact quote, but the gist of it was the last thing that you should be worried about when you're writing is pleasing people and not making people angry. Because if, if that's what you're worried about, you're watering it down. And why write? And why write? Why, why go to all that energy right. if, if it doesn't have an edge to it? I'm not saying everything has to have an edge to it, but you're right. Absolutely right. And that's how I felt as I wrote the book. And as I look back, I'd, I'd say the exact same thing. Yeah. I, w- I would say another one is just complete and utter silence. Oh, yeah. Wow. That's another grim Like no reviews. No reviews. Nobody's no really feedback. interested in it. Yeah, right? yeah. The world goes on. They all wake up and go, hmm, yawn another book on this topic or so you fear that and that goes to this idea of you may not sell any books i was looking at a statistic and most self-published books sell 250 copies or less wow is it that yeah little? it's that low and wow. traditionally published books are around three thousand copies which you sell them for 20 bucks a piece that's sixty thousand dollars and the publisher takes some of that and so you're not going to get rich off of this. But and the point that I'm trying to make in relation to what you're saying is that you might not sell a whole lot of copies. And does that mean that your book is bad? Or does it mean that you haven't done the right PR? I don't know. How, but that's a reality. Is you it may is a reality. not sell it is, copies. It is. And yeah. I think we get this often with authors, and they want to talk about how many copies are going to sell and whether there's a return on their investment. The answer is what? It's a it's a nineteen dollar book or a twenty three dollar book. Right. It's not going to sell without a huge investment in PR, and even then, it might not sell that many. It, it's not books are not something that are a real revenue model. Right. It's not how you're going to get rich and famous. It's not how you're going to get rich and famous. So 
I, I do think one grim piece is this silence that you feel. And the reason why that's real is because when a book comes out, there might be some PR around it, but it takes time for people to find out about your book. It takes time to build momentum. That's why we talk about the three phases of right, promoting right. your book. But that window of time when it does come out, which is about six weeks, which you have to kind of light some fires and get things going, that that window, that's the second phase. So it just sometimes doesn't come out with a huge, there's not like a huge bang. Right. And all of a sudden, everybody's aware of your book. It doesn't come out as a wildfire. It doesn't come out as a wildfire. Right, right, so right. that's a really important thing as you think about your book and what your expectations are when that book comes out. Right. Back to the financial piece. Usually books are not going to change your financial situation. You're just not going to sell enough books to stash away some for retirement or go on an expensive vacation. It's just not going to really change your financial situation. Is that the case with your book, Death by Suburb? Absolutely, that's true. So I, my first advance, I had two publishers. The first publisher I fired after I sent a couple drafts because I was sent back the raw, unedited comments from the senior vice president of sales and marketing. And so the editor had sent those along with some comments about my chapter. His, his comments were great or fine. They had some criticism in them, which is fine. But then long story, I, I gave back my advance. So my first advance for the book, which was half, was $1,800. So That's it was a it. 36, it was a $3,600 book advance. Wow. I think that's a lot smaller than what people think an advance is going to be. That's right, because most of these publishers are small publishers. Yeah. And if you're a first-time author, it might be a $5,000 advance. Yeah, that is mind-boggling to me. It is. But my one with Harper One was $25,000. 25000 25000 $25,000. So I got 12500 upon signing and then 12500 when the manuscript was delivered. Now, I'm, I was a first-time author then. So they were hoping to sell quite a few copies then if they were yes. giving you that kind of advance. They were. And and the the book sold past its advance. So there's this math, this publisher math. And right. They don't give you a lot. I think it's $3 for a hardback and roughly about a dollar for uh, a paperback. And so when it goes into paperback, you have to sell all that that many more because you're only getting a, a dollar an, right, you right. Know, per copy that's sold. But Mine sold well past the advance, but it wasn't a bestseller. Right. And so when I went back to them, and often they have the first right of refusal for a second book. And can you explain first right of refusal for people who don't know what that is? The first right of refusal is a clause that is in your uh, agreement with the publisher that you sign. Typically, you have to look for it. It just simply means that, that they get the first shot at your next book. Okay. It's their hedge to say, if this thing goes wild and all of a sudden you become a bestseller, we get the first crack at the next the next book. You have to submit your manuscript to us first and we'll right. get a chance to refuse it. So that was in your contract That was with in Harper my One. contract. So after Death by Suburb, I, I went back to them and, and said, you know, I might have a sophomore effort in me. And I went back to them and they they didn't want to do a second book with me. Even though you sold a significant amount. I of did. It was it was a good chunk of 40 or 50,000 and needed to be 100,000. Right, right. I could have published with other publishers at another sophomore effort, but I decided not to do it. And reason why is because I didn't feel like I had a good idea. I felt like my next idea was engine run on 
Right. And so only now, years later, do I feel like I have another good idea that I'm working on right now, which I won't tell anybody about. Yeah, I know. I was going to say, tell me, but you don't want to tell I don't want to talk about it, yeah, because that means I might have to write it. <laughs> or somebody will steal it. Like. Yeah, or somebody will steal it, right. So, but but the point here is is that I had other opportunities but chose not to do it. They would have been at much smaller publishing houses. And, and I decided at the last minute not to do it. I just thought I didn't want to do something that was just engine run on, something similar right. to, to Death by Suburb because that had been a great idea and I didn't want to. Right. So I think your expectations about what this book will do for you, it certainly didn't make me rich if $25,000 or you know whatever it was I finally received from. I'm still, in fact, just the other day I got a check and I got you get a check every six months and so it's been 13 years, 14 years, and I think I got a check for 130 bucks. So you're so, still selling copies. Yeah, for, at, every six months I get a check. So, yeah. I mean, arguably you could say I probably sold 130 books last the last six months. Okay. So the point, though, is, is that it doesn't change your life financially. Right, you're still here doing this podcast with me. You're not up in Montana fly fishing today. I would be fly fishing <laughs> and living in a, ca- in, a, in a cabin. That's right. I should be there writing. Wouldn't that be awesome? That would be awesome. So I I do think financial expectations are so overblown. Everybody has this secret thought that their book is going to be the one that ends up on the New York Times bestseller, right? And it's just, again, you have a better chance of getting hit by lightning than that happening. If you want to build a writing career of books, you need to think of it as a career of about 30 years, 40 years of writing not this kind of one and done that somehow you're going to try out for the you know the Chicago Bears as a defensive lineman and you're going to make the make the cut right that's right. silliness and i think that goes back to it being um more of your life's dedication your life's work being a writer and lamott i read in her book bird by bird she didn't have a bestseller until many books under her belt and she tells aspiring writers all the time that you probably never will have a bestseller. So I think that that's true. And the difference there is that she was a writer. She felt in her soul she was a writer, and that's what she wanted to dedicate her life to. And there are so many people who have ideas and they have um, expertise in a field, but they're not necessarily writers, but they want to write a book to support their expertise. I think that's a distinction that needs to be made. I think that's a really important distinction and you're asking the question, what what role do I want writing to play in my life? Right. For me, when I started really to get serious about writing in my late 20s, I said I wanted it to be part of my life. I ended up being an editor for eight years and, and, and have done a ton of writing through the years with podcasts and all these different things. But it's a part of my life. Right. It's not necessarily how I make my living. It is in the sense that Many of the things we do with the marketing agency and this or that have writing pieces to it. Right, right. But I have I made the decision that writing is a part of my life, and whether it's books or whether it's uh, writing articles or blogs or white papers or whatever it is, or just editing, that's a part of my life. And I this idea that somehow you're going to write once, lightning's going to strike, you're rich, and then you can live in Montana or live in Costa Rica for right. the rest of your life and, and surf. It's silly. It's, it's, it's silly. pure silliness. And, and you have to fight against that. So you're right. What role is writing going to play in my life? Right. And are you going to stick with it day after day and actually write every day as you're, you're saying? I think if you're using writing a book to support your business or your platform, 
I think you need to start to frame the book success in a different way. And we tell authors this frequently that often it's not the sales of your book that's going to measure your success, but what comes along with the book, meaning does, do you expand your platform? Are people seeking out to be on boards? Are you getting speaking gigs where you can sell books in bulk and get paid for those speaking engagements? Can you think of anything else that comes along with that? I just want to emphasize, though, the speaking engagements. You mentioned that. That's a huge thing for people who are writing business books. And if you want to speak more and you do have something to say, you have a great idea, I think having a book is a great hook for speaking engagements and you'll make 200 300 times the amount of money even by charging a modicum right. of, of money for uh to to speak you'll make so much more money than than you will from the book itself that's such a good point people are really myopic they think that it's only the sale of the book that matters when there's so many other ways to make mo money off of the book when death by suburb came out i had a friend who was an investment banker he's now retired yeah and he came to me and said, hey, Dave, uh, he said, I I'd be glad to help you with some, some capital if you want to use it to promote the book. Hmm. I thought long and hard about it. So I took $5,000, and we called them DBS bonds, hmm. death by suburb bonds. We called them DBS bonds. And so he gave me $5,000, and I gave him 20% return on that. So I think I paid him an extra 1000 So I paid him $6,000. Okay. He gave me that money. So... I took that money and invested it in website, promotions. Uh, I did a campaign to, to my audience. And so I used that money to promote the book. So you could argue the money that I make, you, you have to then subtract the money you're investing in promoting the book. Right. And so it's a lot less than what you thought. But after that, I probably did 30 to Oh my gosh, I probably did 40 or 50 speaking engagements. Which all generated interest in the book and people buying the book. That's right. It, it yeah. did that, and I would get small fees. They weren't large amount of fees. I did a retreat one weekend. I think I got 1500 or $2,000 for the retreat, and and it was a lot of work. It, it, I've never worked harder, actually, for money <laughs> than I did to write that book and then to promote that book. Right, and that goes back to, again, the three phases of promoting your book. That's right. That's and I did every one of those phases. The reason you and I have come up with those phases is because we we've done them, and right. and, and it, it actually works. It just it just doesn't. It's not going to buy you the home on the lake, right? Or the river, or, or the, the ocean, river, or the ocean. That's <laughs> right. That's right. You have a quote that I really like from Anne Lamott. Would you read that quote? This quote is great. It really speaks to the difference between. Do you want to be a writer or do you want to be a writer? And I'll, you'll understand what I mean when I read this quote. She does white writing workshops, and at the beginning of the writing workshop, she says something like this. My students at the writing workshops have the gift of loving to read, and some of them are really fast, really good with words, and some of them aren't really fast and don't write all that well. But they still love good writing, and they just want to write. I tell them what it will be like for me at the desk the next morning when I sit down to work with a few ideas and a lot of blank paper, with hideous conceit and low self-esteem in equal measure. 
I will tell them they'll want to be really good right off, and they may not be, but they might be good someday if they just keep the faith and keep practicing. And they may even go from wanting to have written something to just wanting to be writing, because writing brings with it so much joy, so much challenge. It is work and play. What do you think of that quote, Dave? I want your your thoughts on it before I weigh in. I love it because she goes to the heart of it. The thing itself is not publishing, but it's writing. And feeling like you've really said something in your voice that is substantive and reflects what you want to say. There is just nothing like that. I love that phrase. It is work and play. Right, right. And I think when you approach the book as just a measure to make money, you lose the play. You totally strip out the play. You strip out the play. It's no longer fun. It's, no, it's nothing that gives you enjoyment. It just becomes this thing you have to do, like going to work every morning. And there's some days that you do just have to go to work and write. But, Absolutely. But writing should be something that that delights you, I think, and that you you play around with. words. There's so many words to choose from in the English language. We need to do a podcast on our favorite words. I feel like I have about five I could talk about off the cuff. but Just do one right now. What is one of your favorite words? Song fra. <laughs> song fra? Yeah, song fra. I think it's a German word. Oh, great. Yeah. Yes, it's composure or coolness usually shown in danger when you're under dangerous circumstances. So you're calm, cool, collected composure. I love that word. I don't know when I would use, I would never say it correctly. (laughs) Right. And people would just like raise their eyebrows. Probably one of those that looks better than it is in said in person. (laughs) But if you said it at a cocktail party, people would be very impressed. Right. Right. So what's yours? (laughs) Mine's a German word too. The German. Schadenfreude. Oh yeah. That's a good one. Schadenfreude. It's the word that... (laughs) It's when you take pleasure at the misery of others. Yeah. I have an example of how I could use that today, but I think I'll hold off. Exactly. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I realize I am just a small man. I, I shot in Freude. What take if, pleasure at the, mystery of, uh, at the misery of others. Okay, one more, and this is one that okay. you've taught me. Oh, really? Yeah. Sinecure. Sinecure. S-I-N-E-C-U-R-E. Sinecure. Do you remember what it means? I do. It's the it's a it's someone who has a job with a title but no real responsibility. Right. They don't do anything. They don't do anything. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's a great word. All it's right. A, it's an awesome word. We okay. should have a favorite word every episode, or maybe just do an episode on it. We should. Either <laughs> one would be great. <laughs> anyway, back to Anne Lamott. I th- I think what she's getting at in this quote is that. You may think that you are a writer and you love to write, but until you actually start writing, you don't know how difficult it is. And then you just have to keep at it over and over and over again. And you will see that it's work, but it's also kind of a joyful experience. Back to our question, what can publishing do for you? If it doesn't want to make you write more, then all you're interested in is what writing can do for you and not for the writing itself. And I think it's hard to read people who are only in it for the publishing. I'm trying to think of an example. And maybe that's not that's unfair. Right, because we but don't know people's motives always. <laughs> that, you never know. Yeah, you never right. know people's motives. But, you, but you've read, let's say, business books. A friend has given you a business book and you went... Mm-hmm. 
I could have belched that out without giving much thought. <laughs> That's exactly right. Or in fact, when I was at uh, Leadership Journal, where I worked uh, for eight years, and we used to have this saying, we called it the Berkeley's five minute rule. And the idea was when we would evaluate manuscripts and they would come in on the topic of leadership, this was nonprofit leadership, specifically uh, religious uh, nonprofit leadership. And, and we would, we would stand, we had this rule that if you could stand by the water cooler and come up with the five principles in the document, mm -hmm. I, there were so many manuscripts that you're like, Oh, number one, think like a leader. Number two, act like a leader. Number three, get feedback, get feedback, yeah. <laughs> three, four, well, four, handle conflict. <laughs> Number five, yeah, I mean, stuff like that, right? Well, I, I think we, we should write an article right now, Dave. Let, let's sit We're down. And just, we could write a whole book right now, you and me right yeah, now right. on these, these uh, leadership cliches. cliches. Yeah. So books like that, you get the sense that the writer was just interested in getting a book out. Publishing should fuel your desire to continue to be a writer. Right, right. That's a huge mindset shift. It's a huge mindset shift. And that means whether you self-publish or whether you find a traditional publisher. Right. And if you're going to commit yourself to writing, you may also have to, you know, pick up some shifts at Starbucks or, right, it's, it may not pay the bills. But it, that it may not pay the bills. <laughs> in fact, it won't pay the bills. Right, right. Maybe in 40 years. Uh, the Stephen King stories are are unique. And right. he wrote for years before he sold Carrie, which I think was his first right, right. Uh, novel. Back to the point. The point, I think, what will publishing do for your... I think the best thing it could do for you is to feel your desire to continue to write. Right, right. So a few takeaways. One, writing a book and publishing a book is not going to change your life drastically. No, typically, it won't. 99.9% it won't. of the time. Yeah, I, I would say that's absolutely true. But two, it can build credibility. It will build credibility. And give you opportunities to speak on the topic, to even write more on the topic, and maybe like magazines like with you. I, I got a chance to write for the New York Times after Death by Suburb. In fact, it happened about five or six years after the book came out. Or maybe it was, maybe it was closer to 10 years after the book came out. I suddenly, through uh, Twitter, uh, this this editor from the New York Times said, hey, we're doing a, a section on the suburbs. Would you be interested in helping out with this section? Yeah. And so I was like thrilled. So now I can put New York Times writer as, you know, under my resume. That sounds pretty important. Oh, that's impressive. But it was just a small, tiny piece. It's kind of like me being in country living or writing for Fling Market Style magazine. It's a small slice of my overall career of who i am and yeah, who, and who I am. you are that's right i'm so much more than those things and those accomplishments it's just part of the whole that's what writing is that's what publishing is it's just part of your whole it's part of your it's whole. part of your story i love that i really do love that and lastly another key takeaway is that publishing should really encourage you to become a better writer oh that's perfect yeah if there's if there's one thing out of this podcast, it would be that. It's just one milestone on that journey of becoming a better writer, a better observer, a better interpreter of experience, a better researcher, so that you can impact the world with your ideas. I mean, why write if you're not going to do that? Right. I think that's a great note to close on. Do you have anything else, Dave? I don't. I, I think you and I could talk 
could talk on this topic for a long time. I do. Well, we'll have to revisit it. Maybe we'll have some more stories down the road. Well, I love the idea of fueling this idea of, of making writing a part of your life. I do too. I do too. I just want to encourage people, if they're listening to this, to share their own stories of what their expectations were of publishing or what their expectations are now, if they're in the middle of writing a book, what their expectations are, and maybe how this podcast helped them see things a little bit differently. For sure. You can email us, Dave and Melissa at journey66.com. And you can also post a comment on our website. We have a podcast. You post the podcast under the blog. You can respond there as well. We would love to hear from you. We're all on the same journey. Right. We're all on that journey. And I, Dave and I even slip up sometimes. And I think, think, yeah, being published is going to change our lives, right? I mean, yeah, it's absolutely. easy. We're human, even though we objectively know that it won't. The human part of us slips into thinking that way. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. yeah. So it won't change your life in the moment. But if you make writing a part of your life, it will change a trajectory of your life. Yeah, that's good. That's good. All right. Well, I think that's a wrap. I'm Melissa Parks. And I'm Dave Getz. Now buckle up and write.